All right, Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to be as we continue to look at new life. New life. We're to put on new clothes. The Spirit of God has come in and given you a new heart. He is remaking you from the inside out, and that is supposed to make your life look different on the outside. That you're supposed to put on some new clothing of new behaviors and a new lifestyle. And so we've been looking at a number of ways in which that's supposed to change, and we come this morning to verse 28. Verse 25 is the therefore, because you have a new life, therefore let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. It's so short, let's read it again. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This ends the word of God. Praise be to the Lord. Now we've looked at um, the, the language that Paul uses here in this section between verses 25 and 32 is the language of putting off and putting on. That you're to take off the, the old clothing of the old life. And we've looked at evil speech and instead put on words that build up. And then whether whoever looked at last week, that we're to take off an unrighteous anger and instead put on kindness towards one another. And now to finish up this paragraph and this section of looking at some of these aspects and these behaviors of the new life is we are called here to put off theft and stealing and put on instead honest work. Now, what, what I, I want to acknowledge here at the very beginning as we move right smack dab, we're going to move quickly into our first point this morning, is this, is that Paul is writing to Christians. He's not writing to un- non-Christians. He is not um, in the middle of jail ministry when he says this. He is writing to a church in which apparently he feels the needs necessary to say, hey thieves, stop stealing and go to work. And so you might think, well, that's quite odd that Paul would speak to Christians like this, but it is the call of Paul that we are to put off stealing, and that's the first thing we're going to look at this morning. How does one steal? There's, there's a lot of different ways one can steal. I'm going to give you three, three ways and three kind of relationships in which we steal, in which we engage in theft. And I was actually, you know, part of, I've been preaching now consistently here for 10 years, and so that means I've, I have a large file of sermons and notes that I go back to even when I come up to upon a new passage that I haven't preached on, and I haven't preached on this text, but I have preached on the parallel text in Colossians, and I've also preached on the Eighth Commandment, and the Eighth Commandment says, thou shalt not steal. And I was going back, and I was looking at that sermon, and you know, when I preached on the Eighth Commandment, it was the week before Christmas, and I knew it was quite a bummer to our church that I wasn't doing a Christmas series because no one gets into the very Christmassy spirit by, by you know, be hearing about doing not stealing. And so I decided to throw you a bone in that sermon, and I used three illustrations to, to show you the three types of ways in which we steal using three famous Christmas uh, story uh, characters. And so I'm going to give them to you again, even though it's not Christmas time. It's August, so this is Christmas in August. Here's three ways you can steal, looking at three different characters from Christmas stories. First, Mr. Grinch is an illustration of stealing as common theft. What does he do? He simply goes down the mountain, takes all of the stuff of Whoville, and runs off with it. This is how we normally think of stealing. 
Taking what is not yours. It, I, I looked up, I remember this week, and the first thing I thought of when I looked at this passage was, you remember the, the um, cookie, uh, cookie crumble cereal and the old uh, commercials from the 80s? There was the cookie crook who was always trying to steal the cookies from the cereal. This is how most Americans think of theft. Someone who breaks into your house, takes your uh, flash screen TV, and heads out the back door. But unless you have a drug habit, most Americans don't participate in this kind of thievery. But there are some forms of common theory that we have no problem participating in. Let me just name a few and see if any of these check the box for you. There is a huge problem of our society of people stealing from their employer. U.S. retailers, for example, in 2003, this is going way, way back, so this is a long time ago, but apparently lost somewhere between $30 and $40 billion due to shoplifting by their own employees. In fact, retailers said that 47% of their losses came from employee theft. Next, kids steal from their parents. I have kids who are constantly taking my cash right out of my, my drawers. There is governmental institutional stealing, such as unlawful or exorbitant forms of taxation. Some of us like to steal right back from the government. We call it creative tax solutions. We can steal with words, which we call that plagiarism. You can steal answers. This is called cheating. You can steal creativity. This is called patent infringement. You can fail to repay debt. We call this bankruptcy or defaulting. Did you know that between 15 and 20% of all student loan debt is never paid off or paid back? In Psalm chapter 37, verse 21, it actually says this, though, the wicked borrows and does not pay back. But this is one of the telltale signs that you live in a wicked society, is that when you have a vast quantities of people who are unwilling to pay their debts, but the righteous is gracious and so he gives. You can steal time. We call it showing up late or what is that? What, showing up at the party on time, uh, promptly five minutes late. You can steal someone else's uh, stuff by destruction, by littering or vandalism. And you can steal simply by lazy or sorry work. When you're being paid to do a job and you don't do it with diligence, you're no better than the guy who steals directly from his boss, the retail manager. Proverbs 18 verse 9 says, He also who is slack in his work is brother to him. Who destroys. So, did you find yourself in any of that list of simply the common theft? Well, that's one character. We move on to another character who tells us about stealing, and that is Mr. Potter. Remember Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life? Mr. Potter is an illustration of stealing through exploitative business practices. This isn't so much that he enters your house and takes your stuff or, you know, is leaving work and decides to snag an extra ho-ho on the way out. No, this is somebody who engages in theft using fraudulent financial practices and other types of activities. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 35 and 36 says this, You shall do no wrong in judgment and measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances and just weights and a just ephah and a just ten. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In other words, what he's saying this, what they would do in the old times is if you came into the market, they had things that were supposed to be standard weights. It's like, this is supposed to be an ephah and you put your flour there and you're supposed to weigh out a full ephah, but they don't want to pay you for a full ephah and so they short the weight that they put on the other side. And that's how they were take, would extort money and exploit people in order to get more flour out of them for less money. Proverbs says unequal weights are an abomination to the Lord. So let me ask you, 
Those of you in business, are you charging a fair price? Lawyers, do you bill only for the time you actually spend on clients' work? Doctors, are you only ordering tests that your clients actually, your patients actually need? Are you actually writing off lunch expenses of lunches that you actually had with real clients? We can steal by exploitation in other ways too, by taking advantage of the poor. This is seen over and over again in the Old Testament that God is really, God really gets ticked off by this. And we see it all over our country and countries all over the world. One of the most common ways in which we exploit the poor is through payday loans. These companies target particularly those with poor credit who can't get traditional loans from the banks. And you know, the the payday lending industry is vast and enormous. Did you know there's more payday lending stores in the United States of America than there are McDonald's? More payday loan industry places than McDonald's restaurants. In recent years, there have been a number of laws that have been passed to curtail this damage a great deal. But even, looking back only 10 years ago, you could find payday loan places that charge up to 300% interest. And what part of town do you find payday loan, loan lenders? Are they like, you know, right next to the golf courses? No. They particularly put themselves in the most impoverished parts of town, or uh, one that might strike a little bit closer to home for most of us in this room, take our own state lottery system, the Powerball. Didn't it just reach over a billion dollars and was won by, by one person a couple weeks ago? But what, what funds the lottery system? And actually, what does our lottery system fund? Our lottery system funds the Hope Scholarship, sending thousands of middle-class kids to school every year. But who are the primary funders of the lottery system? The vast amount of people who buy lottery tickets are the poor. So we steal hope from the impoverished so that we might give hope to the middle class. That is what we've done, and we've made it structural in our own country and own state. Amos chapter 8, verses 4 through 10. This is longer, but follow along with me on this. And hear how God thinks about this treatment of the poor in our business. Practices. Hear this, he's speaking to Israel, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make an ephah small and the shekel great? Again, mis- misappropriated balances, all right, so they may take advantage with false balances. Verse six, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile, and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon, and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning, and your songs into lamentation. I will bring your sackcloth on every waist, and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun, and the end of of it like a bitter day. This is how God responds to exploitive business practice, especially against those when you take advantage of the poor. So, how are we participating in this? Well, the last one. Isn't this a happy exercise? One last Christmas, Christmas uh, character we, we can share with you to help us understand one other way in which we steal, and that's Mr. Scrooge. Mr. Scrooge from the Christmas Carol is an illustration of stealing in the form of failing to simply be be generous. 
and failing to give, and particularly in being failing to give back to God what he has called us to give to him. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Man, the minor prophets just bring the heat. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, it says this, Will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, well, how have we robbed you? And what's his answer? And your tithes and contributions. What is fascinating about this text, if I was just talking about the lack of generous giving, then he would say, well, you're just being stingy. Stop being so stingy with your money. But it doesn't say that. He doesn't say you're being stingy as if this is some small thing. No, God says, you're robbing me. And the context here is God is addressing his people with a legal dispute for their unfaithfulness to him. And they ask him a question, how have we robbed you? And he says, because you have not given the tithes and the offerings. Tithe is a word, it means tenth. If the people of God were required to give 10% of their income for the work of the, the temple ministry and for the work of the Levites, this would be like giving to the church. But also the people of God were supposed to give far above that, weren't they actually? Because not only did they give 10% to support the work of the, the, the temple ministry of Israel and the Levite ministry of Israel, but they were also supposed to give cattle and sheep and goats for various sacrifices. And then they were also supposed to look at their land and you go, well, listen, back then they didn't have taxation like we have now. Yes, they did. You see, they, when, they, when they gleaned in their crops, you know what they were supposed to do? They were supposed to do it in crop circles so they wouldn't take care take take away the wheat in the corners so the impoverished of the community could come and glean for themselves. And then when they went over their fields and cut down the wheat and gathered them up, they weren't supposed to go over the field twice. They were only supposed to go over it once so the impoverished of the community could also come behind them and pick up their scraps. So, but God's simply saying, you're not even doing the 10%. They were to give to God their best, their first fruits. This was an agrarian economy. They're, they're, they were supposed to give their best overs, not their leftovers, which is what we give in our culture. They were to give, both be giving 10% of their best, but then giving in other ways as well. And the implications here are pretty profound, aren't they? That God expected his people to dedicate at least a tenth of their wealth and income to him. And if they fail to do so, it is considered robbery. Robbery of whose house? God's house. That's not a good house to steal from. He, under, he knows where you live. Now understand the logic here because it leads to an important principle. You can only rob the true owner of things. What is this telling us? If you're not giving God a tenth, it means that you're robbing from him because he's the one who actually owns what you possess. God owns everything, and we are merely managing his assets for him. There's different ways in which we look at our possessions and our wealth. One theologian named Gordon Spikeman put it this way, I thought it was pretty uh, poignant. He said, there are roughly four perspectives regarding possessions by people in the world. What is yours is mine, and I'll take it, says the robber. What is mine is mine, and I'll keep it, says the stingy miser. What is mine is ours, so I'll contribute, says the humanistic socialist. And what is mine is God's, so I'll give it, says the Christian. The biblical perspective is that everything you have belongs to God, and therefore to not give to him simply what he is saying, saying the proceeds, the, 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 the fruit of the labors that he has given you, then you're stealing from him. We are managers, not owners. And therefore, you have not truly ceased to be a thief when you've stopped thieving. You know, even thieves stop thieving, at least for a little bit, right? It's called being in between jobs. 
But you've not actually ceased being a thief in God's sight until you've become a philanthropist. And that you view your life this way. You've not ceased stealing until you've become generous. But the question is, question is how generous, right? I mean, how generous do I have to be to not be stealing from God? Well, again, the standard in the Old Testament was a tenth. And the Pharisees asked Jesus about this. And Jesus looks at them and says, you should be doing the tenth and some. In other words, Jesus holds up the Old Testament standard about tithing. He reaffirms it. And then he asks the question, are you giving that much? You should start as a baseline, not as a legalistic hurdle, but as a baseline giving 10% of your income away to God's causes and the kingdom causes around the world. This is where you start. That's the baseline. That's the beginning. And it goes up from there as you come to consider that Jesus is giving you his all. So are you robbing God? Are you robbing God? Well, let's just look at some stats and then look at ourselves. Two of the most prominent Christian sociologists are a guy named Christian Smith and Michael Emerson, and they finished a landmark study on Christian charitable giving called Passing the Plate a number of years ago. And here are some of the facts that they found about Christian, American Christian giving. Now, by the way, American Christians give like tenfold what non-Christians give. The stats are pretty staggering. But here's what we see about Christians. The average giving per household of the average American Christian is 2.9%. Is that 10%? Mm, Last I checked, three three was less than 10. 72% of all Christians give less than 2% of their income away to any and all causes. Less than 9% 9 of all Christians give 10% of their income away. That means less than 9% of the people in this room actually follow God's law on on this principle. More than 20% of all U.S. Christians give nothing away to anyone for anything. They conclude in their book with this statement and then this question. Here's the riddle they they say. We are the most affluent single group of Christians in the 2,000 years of church history. And so the question is, why don't American Christians give away more of their money? You see, we can look at greed, and we can look at the greasy payday lenders, and we can look at scummy Wall Street bankers, and we can say, look, those are the people who are thieving. But according to the findings of these sociologists, greedy thieves that God says are out there in the world, they look like this. This is the next picture. The average American family that goes to church That's what they look like in God's sight, according to God's word, and according to the stats. So are you Scrooge, Grinch, or Mr. Potter, or are you these guys? So we're to put off all forms of theft, but it's not easy enough to merely cease thieving activities. When when can you say a thief has truly stopped thieving? Well, as we saw just a minute ago, it's not simply when he's in between jobs, but it's when he has changed his life and changed his vocation to one who lives his life to be generous with all of his life. The principle for the Christian is that when you come into new life, when God changes your heart and your life, what springs up from your life is a new vocation that becomes about generosity. And so let's look what we need to put on. And what he calls us here is to put aside thieving and said, put on good work. Now here we need to understand, it says in most of your Bibles, maybe honest work. 
The Greek word that is actually used there for honest is the word agathos. What it means literally is good, where we get the word agatha. Good or useful or noble. And so let's look at what is good work. What is the good work? If we're going to be engaged in this, if we're going to put this on, we need to understand what it is and move towards it. And the first step towards moving towards good work is how we see our work to begin with. Good work begins with seeing labor as a blessing from God, not, I might add, as a curse. Good work begins with seeing life as a labor, our life's labors as a blessing and not a curse. Now, the world sees work generally as a curse. If you look at even going back to the ancient societies, our world looks at as a necessary, work as a necessary evil. We do work, and we get that out of the way so that we can do the things we really want to do. And this goes all the way back to the, even the ancient accounts of creation and how work came about. Do you know the story of Pandora's box? Pandora's box is where we find is the Greek gods. Everything seems good. They're hanging out. But the gods decide to give Pandora a box. Now, and they say, listen, Pandora, don't open the box. Your job is just to sit there and look at the box. It's a beautiful box, but don't open the box. Well, of course, what does Pandora do? Pandora opens the box. And out comes all the things that are evil and bad about the world, including, it says, work. In the Enuma Elish, which is the Mesopotamian creation account of how the world came about, we're told the gods create the world, and they're like, you know what? This, like, keeping the world together is a, is a real bummer. It's a lot of work keeping up the world. It's like first-time homeowners who are like, wait, I, I got to fix stuff? I, I actually got to, like, it's my job to replace the carpet? And so they create human beings because work is too demeaning for the higher beings to do. And Marduk, who's the leading god in the story, says this, let us bring into being a lowly, a lowly creature. We will call him man. That will be his name. To him shall be charged all the labors so that the gods may have their ease. This is ancient cultures stating what we believe today, which is that work is a curse, that it's been given to us as a curse. But the biblical account, how does Genesis 1 and 2 describe work? The biblical account of creation of the world seeks work as a blessing, not as a curse. This is foundational for a theology of work. And here we must look back to these first couple chapters. Genesis 1.28, God comes to Adam and Eve and he says this. The first command or the first call he gives is this. Fill the earth and subdue it. God blessed them by giving them something to do. In Genesis 2 it says he put man in the garden to work it and to keep it. So let's Twitterize this so that we might remember it. In paradise, they were not on vacation, they were on vocation. In paradise, they were not on vacation, they were on vocation. Work is a part of God's perfect world. Now, we often think of heaven as we're going to get up there and we're going to sit on clouds and we're going to wear an angelic diaper and we're going to strum harps on the clouds in heaven. But that is actually, and that is not very attractive to most of us. I get up during the day, on my day off, if I'm at the house for more than an hour or two, I get really grouchy. I have to do something. Because God has actually wired us and designed us in that. So part of new creation is you're going to have something to do. And you're going to love it. As opposed to now when your parents tell you to do something and they go, you will pick up your room and you will like it. No, in heaven, you actually will like it. It is because you were designed for it. And by putting Adam and Eve to work, it was keeping in step with them as image bearers. You see, because we have a God who loves to work. 
Our God works. The first words of the whole Bible is God creating. He's working. He's making something beautiful. In other words, work is part of your designed dignity in your image-bearing of God. Work is food for the soul. That is why people robbed of work actually begin to whittle away. Dostoevsky put it this way. Robbed of work, robbed of meaningful work, and men will go stark, raving mad. Research has actually shown that people at the end of their life, when they think back in their most significant moments, that they do, they do not mention experiencing leisure or pleasure. It is not, they don't recall that incredible experience of sex or eating a lot of chocolate, but when it's, they recall the times when they were totally immersed in a challenging task that was fraught with significance, especially when they did it in the context of community. Because we were designed for it. You were made and built to work. You are for tough. Get to work. And if you don't work, if you're not engaged in faithful labors in your life, then you will actually deteriorate and you will lack joy really quickly. Now, it is true in the biblical account that work is cursed, though, right? Because man falls, they sin, they reject God. And part of the curse is that God comes to Adam and he says, now you will toil in the sweat of your brow and thorns will come up instead of thistles. And so work is cursed. So our work is hard. We plant and we plant and we plant, and mostly what we get is a handful of weeds that we got to pluck out of the ground. I think it's Irma Bombeck, who is an American humorist, who said it this way. She said, a woman's greatest enemy in life is dirt. You spend all your life working on dirt, cleaning from dirt and washing from dirt and doing dishes from dirt. And then she says, what you get in the end for all of your troubles is six feet of dirt. <laughs> this is the nature of the, of, the, of the fall. And so, yes, while work is cursed, work is not a curse. Those are two different things. Work is cursed, which means there, there's something elusive about it. We're never going to fully achieve all that we want out of it. it is gonna, there's going to be failure, and it's going to be hard, and we're going to sweat, and there's going to be blood and tears, and yet it is not a curse to have to work. And so that leads us to the second thing. What does it say here in this passage that we need to view about our work? That good work is a blessing, but also good work finds purpose in benefiting others. So it says in verse 28, rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, useful work, so that what? He may have something to give to others. Now, there are two aspects of work that benefit others. One is fairly a little bit more plain and obvious in the text, that you make money and you make enough of it so that you can provide not only for your needs, but also for your family's needs. And not just for your family's needs, but for anyone around you who is in need. So I ask you, when you go to work each day, is that the purpose of your work? Or are you just trying to muddle through it? Is the purpose of your work so that I'm, I'm going to do this and this is the great honor of my life so that I may go home and kill something and bring it home and feed my kids and feed my neighbors? Thievery has at its heart self-centeredness. It is a selfishness that is concerned with me and what I want and what my needs, but generosity is concerned about others. It's concerned about what others need and others want and what God desires and what God calls us to do and to be in our life. And so when you go home, when you go to work next week and you bring home a paycheck, listen, you may have a job that does not feel all that exciting to you and you should probably deal with that. 
But understand that there is still dignity in it because with the degree that you're able to go to work and come home and feed your family and you see all that labor as a means of caring for those around you, you are doing something sacred and beautiful in this world. The second way, though, that our work, we find purpose in benefiting others is to simply the work itself. And here we need, we need our, our theology of work to, to be played out a little bit more. Did you know you'll spend some 80,000 hours at your vocation? When you tend to think of work, it may be something you don't make money on. A lot of stay-at-home moms, they work a lot of hours. And they don't necessarily get compensated for it, but that is their vocation. That is God's primary calling in their life. So the work itself is done there to benefit others. In other words, when it says to do work again, their honest work is translated useful work, good work, do a work that is good for society. This means that one of the most primary ways in which you follow the second greatest commandment, the love, not just love your Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but to love your neighbors as well, is by going to work. You go to work so that you may have something to provide, so you might provide services for other people. And one of the, one of the people we can learn the most from, about this from is Dorothy Sayers. You may know the name Dorothy Sayers. She wrote... Uh, prominently right after World War II, but leading up to it as well, where she was a novelist and an essayist. She was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis in England, and she wrote an essay called Why Work? And here's a few things that she says there. Dorothy Sayer says, society as a whole and individuals in particular are withering because we have lost the old biblical doctrine of work. That is that it's a blessing. And she postulates that our modern doctrine of work is a view of work as that which you do simply to make a living. Work is that which you do to make money so that you can do what you really want to do. And she quotes a surgeon friend of hers to exemplify this. And her surgeon friend said it this way, what is happening is that nobody today works for the sake of simply the thing that they do. The result of the work is only a byproduct of their real aim. Their real aim in work is money or status. So doctors practice medicine not primarily to relieve suffering, but to make a living. The patient is something that happens along the way. Lawyers accept briefs not because of their passion for justice, but because this is the profession that enables them to live at a high standard. Sayer says we should enterprise, though. We should engage in enterprise not so much for the pay, but because it is good. Because it's good. And she ultimately gives this definition that I think is so beautiful and lovely. It is, it is the, I think it mimics the biblical definition of work, which is this. Work is the gracious expression of creative energy in the service of others. That's Ephesians 4.28. That's what honest work is. And so if you're, is your work beneficial to the world? Does your work bring life? Does your work push back against the darkness in some way? Now listen, don't get overly spiritual here because there's a Christian spiritualized version of this, which is this. I need to do something that benefits the world, so I'm going to quit my job and be a missionary, and that's what we're going to do. But that is not what God has called most of you to do. And some of you have a job, and you look at it, and you go, my goodness, all I do is I'm a construction worker, and I build roads. You know how important roads are for mission? Let's just do a little history lesson in regards to paving roads. Do you know, as historians look back and they look at the explosion of Christianity in the first two centuries, and one of the reasons they look at contextually as to why 
why Christianity exploded was because of a thing called Pax Romana, which meant the peace of Rome. It's because Rome had so pushed everybody under the thumb and all kind of competitors that had crushed them that there wasn't much war. And so there was peace around the known world at that time. And not only had Rome put so much everybody under the thumb that there was peace and so you can move around a bit easier, but also wherever Rome went, they did what? They built roads. And because of that, in God's common grace, at just the right time, when God was going to send his people to the ends of the earth, there were roads they were to walk to get there. So go build roads. Because it's by that that the mission of God is extended in this world. U2, the lead singer, or the lead singer of U2, Bono, said this, I write songs just to tear off a little corner of the darkness. And some of you are going into, into school, Carrollton City Schools tomorrow, and maybe that's the motto for your year. To engage with a few kids and simply tear off a little bit of the darkness in their life and to bring life and goodness. Dorothy Sayers reflected back on the time of those who had experienced World War II with her, and they looked back at that time with, as a time of unbelievable joy and actual significance. And she it was reflecting on this, and she thought, it was the, the worst things happened. That we lost friends, and we were maimed, and we were wounded, and we didn't eat well, and we had serious deprivation, and we were hardly paid anything, and yet we were full of pride and significance in our life. Why? Because we were giving ourselves to, and giving ourselves to the world so that we might rid the world of the menace of evil. And we joined together to this cost, and it cost them grievous labor, and cost them blood, sweat, and tears, but it was for good. And in that, they're fulfilling good purposes. When we give our lives for the flourishing of our, of our community, guess what happens? Not only does our community come alive, we come alive. Third and finally, good work. If we're going to do good work and honest work, we need to find rest in the finished work of Christ Jesus. And before I get there, though, we have to understand the angst behind even good work. You have to put off, yes, thieving, but you also have to put off work determining, work determining your value and identity and worth and significance in this world. You have to put it off. Work is part of your identity, but it is not your worth. It is not what defines you. Marx famously said that a person is what he does. Is what he does. And while the vast majority of us would find Marxist theology to be utterly disdainful, most of us have actually swallowed that doctrine hook, line, and sinker. Which is why, after we ask somebody's name, what's the second thing we ask? What do you do? Because by, we think by learning what they do, we have, learned their, we have learned their essential identity in this world. For almost all of us, there is a work, you see, underneath our work. It is to view our work as the means by which I will have worth in this world. It is my work, whether that's staying home with children or going to an eight to five job or whatever, doing school, that this is how I get value. And there is a motivating force under our work. And it is not simply because you have a great worth ethic. It's because there's a gnawing at your soul in which if I don't do this, I'm not worth much. It's the theology of Rocky. You know, when Rocky won the night before the fight with Apollo Creed, and Rocky is talking to Adrian, and he says, I don't have to win. I just have to go the distance. Because then I'll know I'm not a bum. And some of you have to get up tomorrow 
And you go, not for any greater grand purpose, not to serve other people, but just so you know you're not a bum. <laughs> I'm not a loser. Why does George Clooney work? He says so in a Men's Health magazine article entitled, Why George Clooney Never Sleeps. He is quoted as saying this in the article, Most of the time I wake up and I feel as if I've missed something. Sleep is something I have to force myself to do. My dad keeps asking me about having a family, but I say, name one actor from the 1920s. No one remembers anybody from the 1920s. In other words, why does he work? Because he's desperate to make a name for himself. So that in 100 years from now, he will be remembered. Now, what form does this belief take now? If we believe I am what I do, then what I do better fulfill me, right? I mean, this better feel good. It better make me feel significant. better be exactly what I want it to be. And you pair this with a generation that was told, you can be whatever you want to be. You want to be a Disney princess? You get to be a Disney princess. You, want to do, you, can, you can do anything you want to be. If you set your mind to it, and actually, you know what we found most of us? Uh, there's a lot of things I've set my mind to that I can't do. There are laws of gravity, which is why I don't play in the NBA. <laughs> and so you pair this, and everyone, but what do we have? We've come to believe what about our jobs? It better fulfill me. And by the way, everybody, they need to compensate me in a way that makes me feel significant. Or else you guys are being unjust. But where has that gotten us? Let me just take an illustration. Let's take a significant that role and vocation that many people here have. It's called motherhood. Now, some of you here were raised to say that motherhood and to believe that motherhood is the most significant task that you can do. And that's great. It is a very important and worthy task to pour your life into. But if you're trying to get your worth and your identity and your significance and your value from this, what's, what kind of pressure is that going to put on your motherhood? And so, you, and so you come to a place where you don't, you're finding some days in which you don't really enjoy it, and so what do you feel? Enormous guilt. And, and then, and then you, what happens when your children, um, when they don't turn out all right? Well, now you have shame. Or what happens if they actually turned out right, and so they, they do what children are supposed to do, and they leave? Now what do you have? You have a loss of identity. So that's one problem, but what happens at the other side? Whereas other, mom, mother, other moms are told that they, they, were, they can do whatever they want. And to be a mom would steal their identity and it would rob them of their significance and their value in this world. And so how do they view motherhood? As keeping them from doing what they really want to do. And so they resent their husbands and they resent their children and they live a life that is shattered because they don't actually get to do what they want to do, or they're constantly, for most of you, is what is it? You're just battered from one to the other. Wouldn't that be awful? And yet that's how most of us live our life. I remember when I first came out of seminary, and we, had a, we, we lived in a very small town, and I was getting ready for ordination, so if you don't understand that in preacher language, that's like getting ready for the bar exam. So I was getting ready for the preacher bar exam, and I was first time out, being as a pastor, and yet we, we had a baby two months in. We lived about two and a half minutes between the church and our house. And I, and I began to joke eventually about a year into parenthood and doing this job that the only time in which I felt any peace in my life was in the two and a half minutes driving from one place to the other. 
Because it was the only plot time in which I did not feel guilty. When I was at home, I felt guilty that I wasn't at work. And when I was at work, I felt guilty I wasn't at home. What a miserable existence. And yet that is the existence that so many of us live because we are running a rat race, longing for significance from one of these things. And this view of life is sucking it out of us against our will. But the vocation that God calls us to requires that, yes, we are to die to self. Think about the primary vocations you have in life. Or I'll just use mine, for example. Pastoring, parenting, and marriage. You know what all three of those vocations require? The death of me. They require me to die. Literally, we're going to look at marriage in a a couple months. What does it say? You have to die to yourself. The self has to die. In other words, I have to become insignificant. Uh-oh, I thought I was trying to become significant through all these vocations. So how do you lay down your, this longing to be significant by what you do in this world? How do you take up vocations that actually make you a servant of all and make you somebody who's going to give up your life and lay down your sense of worth where perhaps you need to hear about your worth from someplace else besides what you do? Whether that's parenting or working and some other vocation. Work is really important. Work is dignifying in God's world, but it is not what defines and makes us significant. To be a Christian, to have new life dwelling down deep in your bones is to know that my work does not define me. But Jesus' work on my behalf is now what defines me. The Creator said at the end of His work, on the seventh day, it said what? It is finished. And so now God says, I can rest. And yet we rejected the rest of God in the garden and the wonderful work that he gave us there to do. And so later on, that creator had to come and die on a cross where on the cross he said, it is finished so that your work is done. How do you know you're significant in the eyes of your creator? One, because in Genesis 1, he looked at you and he said, you are so good. And so here's a job to do, in your goodness. But then, and then when we rejected him, you can know you're significant and you're valuable and you're worthy in his sight and you're lovely and beloved is because he sent his son to die for you so that you can stop this rat race of trying to be significant in what you do. But now, be set free in your job. To be like, oh Lord, how are you calling me to serve? And ultimately, Ultimately, what is truly significant? What is the truly significant life? Like Dorothy Sayers, who's caught up in a significant thing by ridding the world of great menace in World War II. Well, we have a much greater mission. It's called the kingdom of God, in which the significance of your life revolves around the king and his glory. That's why, as we put it on our basketball courts, 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Because he's freed you to do so, to give your life for him. And the living for the glory of God, living for the fame of the one who calls you by name, who knows your name, even if no one else does, and if there is such joy in freeing and giving yourself, your work, and the labors of your hand to him, whatever that may be, to the glory of your name, that is a life of significance. And it's a life of freedom and a life of joy. Would God give us that? That kind of honest work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need to think about our labors differently. 
But, but Lord, I, I wake up every day needing to refill my cup of significance. And so, Lord, what that means is instead of spending time with you, I check my email. Or on Thursday when it's sermon writing day and I haven't done my devotions and I just jump right into sermon prep because I need to do the work because preaching a good sermon would make me feel valuable. But really, Lord, what I need is I need to have my cup filled and to know who I am in your sight. And then I get to live in the joy of what you've given me to do today. And to do it to the best of my ability and leave the fruits of my hands and the labor of my labors up to you. So I pray that this body would wake up tomorrow morning and that they would open their Bibles and that they would remember what you have done for them. That they are the apple of your eye. That they have, formed, they have been formed by you, that you have declared them lovely and beautiful and good and that you have given them a job to do. And that is to serve your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.